Morning, Bloomington Bible Church. It's, a, it's an honor to be here with you. Esteban called me uh, a little while ago, a couple months ago now, and asked if I'd be willing to come down and, and share God's word with you. And I was like, absolutely. I feel honored that uh, Josh and the other pastors would uh, share the pulpit and uh, let me share God's word with you. And so I'm excited to do that today. So uh, as we start, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, bow your heads with me as we pray, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and um, just thank you so much for Jesus. And I thank you for getting to, to sing of him and to praise him for all that he is due, for all that he is done, and um, God, for the salvation that, that you have wrought for us in your son. And um, it's because of him we gather together today. And I pray as we open your word together and we hear what you have for us today, that um, you would prepare our hearts now, Holy Spirit, that you would break the ground where it's hard, that you would, um, God, care for us and speak to us in the ways that we need to be spoken to, that you want to minister to us and minister your word to us, Holy Spirit. Um, I just ask that you'd have your way with our hearts and our minds this morning, and uh, would we respond in worship to you and out of love for you because of the love that you have for us um, and that you show us every single day, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, and I ask your blessing on our time together, and just that you'd use me to say what you want to say this morning, Lord. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. That's where we'll be in God's Word this morning. 1 Kings chapter 19. And as you're turning there, um, I want to start this morning with a question. And, and that's this. Where are you coming from? this morning. Not, uh, not meaning where around here geographically are you coming from. Uh, like I said, we're from up in Indianapolis area, but, but where are you coming from in life today? What season are you in? Where are you coming from this morning? Because every one of you came in this morning from a different point in life, out of different circumstances into where you are right now. Some of you are doing great. Some of you are in a sweet season. It's kind of a business as usual. Things are going well. Um, some of you, maybe you wish you weren't here because of various reasons. Maybe you were invited and you're like, ah, okay, like my friend invited me, so I came this morning. Um, or maybe you're exhausted. Maybe you've come through a season that's been incredibly difficult. It's incredibly tiring and you're just, you're out of it. And some of you are wrestling with a lot of questions about life, about God, about what he's doing. And finally, some of you are here today, and life seems like it couldn't be any more difficult. Like it couldn't get any harder. And there seems to be no sign of it letting up. And you are desperate. That's where you're coming from. You're desperate. What do I mean by desperate? Well, if you would... If you looked it up, um, you might get something like this. This is a, a definition that I found. It's feeling, showing, or involving a hopeless sense that a situation is so bad as to be impossible to deal with. Or more concisely, deprived of hope. Being desperate is the place of I'm trying to live for Jesus at work, but the pressure and the opposition that I'm facing from my coworkers just isn't changing. I've been working diligently to raise my kids so they'll love and worship Jesus, but they continue to reject Him. I'm fighting so hard to represent Jesus at school and to my friends, but it doesn't seem like it's making an impact. They just keep mocking me for my faith and living for Jesus. We've been trying to get pregnant for months or years now with no success. 
Are we ever going to have a child? I tried this or I experienced that and I'm still not satisfied. I still long for more and I don't even know what it is. God, I don't have any friends. I feel like I'm all alone. I sinned again. Disappointment again. I've had enough. Is life really worth continuing? God, are you there? Have you been there? Maybe you've been there. Or maybe you're there now, but if you haven't been there or you aren't there now, the reality is is you'll get there eventually someday in life. And so if you are there, what do you do? Where do you go? And ultimately the question that you, we must ask in those seasons is, what do I need? What do you need? What do we need? And no matter what time of life you're in right now, God answers the essential question, what do I need? And the answer is this, and this is the main truth for this morning that I want you to walk away from that this text puts forward in front of us, and it's this. You desperately need the Word of God, so seek the Word of God. You desperately need the Word of God, so seek the Word of God. So I ask you to turn to 1 Kings 19, and the passage this morning, it's zooming in on the prophet Elijah who finds himself in a desperate time in his life. Elijah is a significant person in the story of the Bible. If you're not familiar with God's Word, if you've not read much of the Old Testament, he was a key prophet or a spokesman of God in the Old Testament. And his task was to proclaim God's Word and will to God's people at the time. And it was the nation of Israel that he's speaking to. And prophets were a big deal at this time because um, the Bible as we have it now only consisted of 10 books at the time. They only had 10 of the 66 books that we have. And God was still revealing what His Word was through the prophets. And at this time, if God hadn't said something that had been written down, he would give it to a prophet and he would go and convey it to the people of God. And God sends Elijah as his spokesman to confront King Ahab of Israel. And it wasn't the first time that Elijah had done this, but this is where we are. He has gone and confronted Ahab, and Ahab is the the, the worst king in the history of Israel up to this point. There's there's even worse kings, which is crazy to imagine, that come after him. But he's the worst king in the history of Israel up to this point. And a huge factor for this was that his wife, Ahab's wife, her name was Jezebel, and she was not an Israelite. She was the princess of a neighboring kingdom. He marries her, and she introduces Ahab and the nation of Israel to the idolatrous worship of the so-called God Baal. And they are worshiping God that they think is God, Baal, through child sacrifice and sexual immorality. It's evil. Jezebel's evil. Ahab has turned to evil. He's turned the nation of Israel to evil. Instead of worshiping God who had rescued them from out of Egypt and revealed His glory to them at Mount Sinai, He's given them His law, He's given them land to live in, Israel rejects God and chooses to worship Baal. And so 1 Kings 18, in 1 Kings 18, God sends Elijah, again, to confront King Ahab and call the nation of Israel to repent and to go back to worshiping God. So Elijah challenges the false prophets of Baal to a showdown on Mount Carmel. That's nowhere near where our church is. And in short, God proves that He is God. God sends down 
fire from heaven that incinerates Elijah's offering and everything around it. And when the people of Israel see this, they declare in that moment that Yahweh is truly God. And then they assist Elijah in putting to death the prophets of Baal. Then God asks, or sorry, Elijah asks God to send rain because there had been a drought for three years. And God sends it. He answers the prayer that day. And then Elijah is supernaturally empowered by God to race Ahab back to the city from the mountain, and he outruns the king's chariot. Don't know how that happens, other than God, like God made him like the flash or something. I don't know. But Elijah has just had what appears to be the most successful and spectacular day in his life and ministry as a prophet of God. And that is where our passage picks up. So look with me at 1 Kings 19, and let's start in verse 1. It says this, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he, Elijah, was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now let's, let's pause. Perhaps some of you, when you read this, uh, might respond like I did the first time I read through this, which was like, come on, Elijah, like, what, what's your problem? What's your problem? Like, remember what happened yesterday? Remember, remember what just happened? You were at Mount Carmel. You, you saw the fire. God sent rain. You outran a bunch of horses. How could you respond like this? You were literally just on the mountaintop. But imagine if you're Elijah. Put yourself in his shoes. You've been serving God and doing what he's been telling you for years. And you see God do something incredible on multiple occasions. Your heart burns to see God's people turn back to God and worship him. And the day after God does the spectacular and gives Israel rain again, nothing seems to change. There's no seeming change. It's like it never happened. Because they actually continue in their idolatry. So it makes some sense for Elijah to do what he does. That's pretty dis discouraging. Disappointing. I probably would have responded similarly. In this moment, Elijah's desperate. Right? You hear it in his words. It's enough. I'm done. To the extreme that he asks God to end his life. But God doesn't say anything. He says nothing. So let's continue reading. It says, So he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now this is significant, that last statement. 
Why does he go to Mount Horeb? Because Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Horeb and Sinai are the same mountain. Mount Sinai is the place where Moses meets and interacts with God on multiple occasions. At the burning bush, that's where Moses comes across the burning bush, is Mount Horeb. And after Moses, God uses Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai, and God comes down, He descends on the mountain, and is there, and meets with Moses, gives the law to Moses, and Moses goes down and gives it to the people. What is Elijah doing? If you go back before chapter 19 and you look, there's not a single place or thing that Elijah does until after the word of the Lord comes to him. It always starts, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and Elijah did this. And chapter 19 is the first place in the Elijah narrative that he's involved with where he does something before the word of the Lord comes to him. So what's he doing going to Mount Sinai? He's going to where God has spoken and revealed himself before. He is seeking the word of God, the word of the Lord. So look again at verse, look back, we're going to continue in verse 9. It says, There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek to take my life away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So in this passage, God reveals, we're going to see three reasons you and I desperately need to seek the Word of God. So three reasons 
you and I desperately need to seek the Word of God. Now, before I give you the reasons, I want to clarify a definition. So when I say the Word of God, what I mean is the special and personal way God has revealed Himself to humanity. That's the definition of the Word of God. The special and personal way God has revealed Himself to humanity. So, reason number one, seek the Word of God because it reveals the heart. Seek the Word of God because it reveals the heart. If you look at verses 9 and 13, and you can look there, look at verses 9 and 13. There's a parallel between the two verses. And the parallel is a question. It's the same question, same wording in both verses in the English and the Hebrew. And it is, what are you doing here? Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, do you think God knows why Elijah's there? Yeah, he knows. He's God. He knows why Elijah's there. But as many theologians note, God is not asking this question for God's benefit or because God does not know or understand. God asks this question for Elijah's benefit. That's why he's asking the questions. Through the first question, the first time God asks the question, God is revealing his heart. God's revealing his heart. God gives Elijah the opportunity through the question to voice what he's feeling. What he's experiencing. You parents, or if you've been parented, you would have experienced this type of question. It's similar to what parents do with their young children, right? Their child falls, they see it happen, they know what happened, and, as, and, and the child's in pain because of the fall, and the child cries out in pain and surprise, and the parent may ask, what happened? What happened? What happened? What's wrong? They do this in an attempt to calm and comfort and soothe the child. They let them know that they're there, that they care. It invites the child to voice their pain. And it communicates the care, like I said, and the concern and the presence of the parent to the child. What are you doing here, Elijah? God wants Elijah to know that he knows what's happened. He's aware, he cares, and he's listening. What are you doing here, Elijah? That's why he asks. And through the second question, God is revealing Elijah's heart. God's revealing Elijah's heart. God repeats the question to go beyond giving, an, giving Elijah an opportunity to voice his felt experience. It reveals what's in Elijah's heart. Because God cares so much about Elijah that he wants Elijah to understand what's in his own heart. That's the reason for the second question. And we see what's in Elijah's heart based on the fact that he gives the exact same answer both times. The exact same answer, word for word, and not just in English, also in the Hebrew. The exact same answer. Which is important to note because throughout the Old Testament... When somebody speaks, it is the narrator or the author helping us see what's true of them, what their character is, what their heart is. And Jesus teaches us this in the New Testament. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
So what your mouth is full of, Jesus is saying, that reveals what your heart is full of in the moment that you speak. For Elijah, we see that his words are full of self. It's full of self. Look at, look at the words. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. That's true. He has. I, even I only am left. That's actually not true. That's not a true statement. If you go back and read chapter 18, Elijah meets a guy who has hidden other faithful prophets in Israel. There's at least a hundred. So he's not the only one. Then he says, they seek my life. That's true. But who's in control? Who's really in control? Is it Jezebel? No. It's the Lord. Even though some of what Elijah said was true, his focus is on himself in this moment. It's on himself and what he had done, but he doesn't say anything about God. He doesn't say anything about what God has done. Somewhere along the line, even in serving God, things were subtly becoming about Elijah. This can happen to us. Whether you're in ministry or whether you're just seeking to live faithfully for the Lord, this can happen to us. And we have to be careful of that because what can come from that is the pity party. That's what this is. This is Elijah really having a pity party. It's, I, I'm the only one. It's, it's just me. Look at what they're doing to me. But God's not ridiculing him. He's letting him speak. Like Elijah, when times get desperate, going back to the pity party, we can get so caught up in what we are doing and experiencing that we begin to wallow in self-pity and everything starts becoming about us. And I speak about this as somebody like, I do this sadly, more frequently than I would like to ad admit. We, this happens. This happens. We're, we are guilty of this. The pity party is really a result of pride in our hearts that results in focusing purely on ourselves in our circumstances. That's what a pity party is. And it's dangerous the pity party is a dangerous party to go to. It's a dangerous place to go to and to get to. It can begin to blind us from the goodness and the faithfulness of God. That's why it's dangerous. It can even cause us to push people away who want to help us, including God. We can push God away as a result of the pity party. But like we see in the story, God doesn't leave. God doesn't leave when we get to that place. He never does. Even when it seems like it, He doesn't leave. He's so patient with us and gracious to us. And we see this in how He relates to Elijah. God makes this promise to us. In Hebrews 13.5, He says, and this is the promise He makes in Joshua chapter 1. It's re-emphasized in Hebrews 13.5. I will never leave you or forsake you. That is how God deals with Elijah. Now, a question. So, as I've been speaking I have 
in mind and this text has in focus somebody who's in a desperate place. But I want to ask those of you who maybe you're not in that place, but maybe you know somebody who's in that place. How do you relate with people who are desperate? So we see how God relates to Elijah as he is desperate. How do we, how do you relate to people who are desperate? Now I want to encourage you to do two things. One, and this is what we see God do, lean into the lives of those who are struggling. Lean into the lives of those who are struggling. When you see people in a state of desperation, do you make a point of asking them intentionally how they are really doing and then listening to them? Do you do that? Do I do that? Do you listen closely and with care in order to hear the other person's heart? Is that what you're trying to do in that moment? We can't love people where they are at and with or in the way they need us to unless we listen well. We can't do that. In Galatians 6.2, Christ calls us to bear one another's burdens as a church family and individually. And as such, we're given the privilege of representing Jesus and speaking His words to one another and to a world that desperately needs God's Word. But we have to lean into the lives of people who are struggling in order to do that. We can't do it any other way. So that's my first encouragement for those of you who know somebody who's desperate or struggling. The second thing is, beware of doing what is easy in relation to people who are desperate. Beware of doing what's easy. First of all, it's easier to avoid people who are struggling. Right? It's easier to just kind of be like, oh, that person's going, I, I don't have time to ask them about that. Or like, I might hear the same thing again as when I asked them the last time. And it's easier to just avoid them. It's also easier to tell people what you think they need to hear instead of listening so that you can tell them what they actually need to hear. That's easier. It's easier to tell people what you think they need and where they are rather than listening to hear where they're at so that then you can speak not your words, but God's word to them, to where they are. So beware of doing what's easy, but praise God that he, he never takes the easy way. God doesn't take the easy way out. And that's awesome because he's still there. He will never leave us or forsake us. Rather than stepping back from Elijah, God leans in, not just by asking the second question, but by making his presence known to Elijah. And this is this leads us to the second reason you and I desperately need the Word of God. The second reason that we desperately need the Word of God. So, second reason, number two, seek the Word of God because it leads you into God's presence. Seek the Word of God because it leads you into God's presence. So, in between the two questions, verse 11 says that God says, go out and stand on the mount before or in the presence of the Lord. Go out. It says the word of the Lord said, go out and stand before the Lord. The word of God, the word of the Lord, leads Elijah into God's presence. That's where it leads him and takes him. And it's after the word of the Lord comes to Elijah that he's told to go out and stand before the Lord. And God shows up. God actually shows up. But notice how the presence of God shows up. Look at how it happens. In verses 11 to 13, there's three, again, spectacular, crazy events that happen. 
There's gale force winds. And as the reader, you would think, this must be the presence of God. Gale force winds. But it wasn't. It wasn't. The earth shakes violently. There's an earthquake. This must be the presence of God. But it wasn't. A firestorm. This must be the presence of God. But it, it wasn't. Then there comes a, it says, a low and gentle whisper. And then Elijah goes out. This was the presence of the Lord. Now, if you were Elijah or a Jew listening to this in a synagogue 2,000 years ago, this is not what you would expect. Because God's presence comes in great winds, earthquakes, and fire in Israel's history before this point. That's how God shows up. That's how they know the Lord is present. But here God shows up in a gently spoken voice, a whisper. This is not how Elijah or a reader listening to this originally would have expected. And it's not how we typically expect God to show up either, is it? Right? So often we can get caught up in looking for God to show up in a specific way like the listeners or maybe Elijah would have been looking for Him. We expect God to show up in a certain way. When we enter a desperate time, we expect or we look for God to show up in spectacular, earth-shattering ways. My marriage is falling apart, God. Where are you? God, if you exist, why don't you just prove it to me? Nothing seems to happen. Seems to happen. God, I just lost my job again. Where are you? But he's there. He's present. And on this side of the cross, he's revealed himself to us. The, the word, seek the word of God because it leads us into the presence of God. But in that, we must seek God's presence in the way he reveals himself, in the way that he comes and is present with us. That's how we have to seek the presence of God. Do you want to see and know and relate with God? Be in His presence? Seek Him through His Word. Seek Him through the Word. God has graciously given us His fully written Word. He reveals His mind, His heart, His will, and His ways to us in the Scriptures. See Him work here if you're struggling to see Him work here. He's worked. He promises to work. He is working. Seek Him through the Word. Ask the Holy Spirit to awaken you to His presence through the Word. So how do you seek the presence of God? How do, you, how do we expect God to show up? Are we looking for Him to show up in a way in our lives? Are you looking for Him to show up in a way in your life in the way you want Him to? Or are you seeking Him in the way that He has chosen to reveal Himself already and the ways that He's revealed that He works? Seek the presence of God in the way He reveals Himself. Seek Him through the Word. Seek Him in prayer. Finally, the third reason we desperately need to seek the Word of God is because it clarifies God's steadfast love. His unfailing love. Seek the Word of God because it clarifies His steadfast love. So after Elijah finishes answering God's questions, God speaks one more time. And up to this point, it seems like really 
with the outcome so far, everything's failed. Nothing's working. If fire falling from heaven isn't enough to bring the people of God back to God, then what's left? How's God going to do it? How is this going to work? And God reveals the next step of His plan to Elijah. He doesn't reveal the whole plan, though. He just reveals the next step. In this moment. So He does not reveal His whole plan in this moment or through a vision or some reality-shattering event that He paints this picture of what He's going to do. It's just the next step. And the next step that God reveals in His plan clarifies, first of all, God's love for His people. Right? Like if, if I'm God and my people are doing this and they will not repent after I've done so much for them, fine. Whatever. You don't deserve it anyway. That's not what He does. Through His plan, God shows His steadfast love for His people. He's going to send Elijah to anoint new rulers, and through them, God is going to judge King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and continue moving redemptive history forward because that's all part of what's happening. Redemptive history is going to move forward. This is not it. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and the wickedness of the people of Israel. This isn't it. And through this next step, God reveals His steadfast love for Elijah. He's going to give Elijah an apprentice. And He reassures Elijah that He's not the only one left who is faithful to God. God's Word that He speaks here is the lens through which Elijah can now see more clearly God's unfailing and steadfast Love. It's like a lens, right? Like, think of it this way. If you were to go to an art museum, because you've heard there is incredible, there's an incredible work of art that you're hearing all about, and you go to this exhibit, but you realize you forgot your glasses. I don't know how you would have gotten there without your glasses, unless somebody who had their glasses drove you, or they don't need glasses, maybe. But you get there to this art exhibit and you realize, oh my word, I forgot my glasses. But you can only get so close to the picture that everybody's raving about. And no matter how beautiful the piece of art is without the right lenses, you're just going to see a giant blur, a big smudge on the wall. You will not and cannot enjoy the art for what it is and experience the effect it's supposed to have on you. You need those lenses to look through in order to see and experience the full beauty of the work of art in front of you. And God's Word, light in the same way here, gives Elijah the ability to see God's steadfast love for His people in Elijah in the midst of this desperate time. But God's Word does not only do this for Elijah, but it does that for us as well. The Word of God does that for us as well. Remember, like I said, this is just the next step in God's plan. This is just a piece of a much bigger plan that goes beyond this text. Well, what plan? What plan? Well, God, He had made two promises long before this moment. One to Abraham and one to King David. God has not yet fulfilled the promises that He's made and the plan is not accomplished yet, but several hundred years later, God fulfills both of His promises simultaneously. In one moment. And this is how it happened. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word 
was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The fulfillment of God's plan that He just gives this next step for to Elijah, the plan was the sending of the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. God's only Son who becomes flesh. He takes on humanity. This is Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. God's own presence with us in person. And Jesus didn't show up, similar to this text, in a spectacular way. Did He? No. He didn't show up in the way that God's people expected Him to. He comes as a baby. And He's placed in a manger. The Word, Jesus Christ, takes on human nature, and He goes beyond leaning into our desperate state to entering into our desperate state. Do you see that God knew we needed not just His Word written for our times of desperation. God knew that we needed Him in person. The Word. We needed Jesus. We needed Jesus. Jesus, the Word Himself, is the One who reveals our hearts. And how did He do this? In the Gospels? questions. He asks questions to reveal what's in the heart. Jesus, the Word Himself, is the One who opens the way and leads us into God's presence through His death and resurrection. Jesus, the Word Himself, crucified, is the ultimate proof or the lens through which we see and understand and experience and know God's steadfast, unfailing love. It's Him. The love of God for you and me. And here's the reality. The Bible teaches us that it's not just in the desperate times and seasons and circumstances that we need the Word of God. Ultimately, Jesus... But we are not just in desperate circumstances. We are desperate souls. This is what God reveals to us. We're desperate souls. Regardless of our circumstance. We've all rebelled against God by sinning and worshiping ourselves. So we deserve and are destined for the just punishment of hell. That's a desperate state. That's a desperate place for a soul. And that's true of all of us, but Jesus, the sinless Son of God, gives Himself willingly to die in our place for our sin and take our punishment in our place and instead offers us full forgiveness of our sin and eternal life with Him if we would turn away from our sin and trust in Him. Jesus is who we all in this room and everyone in Bloomington and everyone in Indiana and everyone in the U.S. and everyone in the world desperately needs because we are all desperate souls. We desperately need Jesus. And no matter what season or time you're in, you are in or the state of your soul, do you see now more clearly than when you first came in this morning, through God's Word, that you desperately need Jesus. You desperately need the Word of God made flesh. So seek Him. Seek Him. Believers who are here this morning, He became flesh 
so that He would be your hope and joy and strength in the midst of your desperate times and fight against sin. That's why Jesus came. Continue to seek Jesus. Even in the written Word of God, seek Jesus. Jesus tells us that all the Scriptures point to Him. They all speak of Him. Point to Him. Will you seek Him today? And trust Him to sustain you. To keep you in your desperate times. Or will you seek something else? Will you look for that somewhere else? Will you go somewhere else? And for if, if, if you're not in a desperate season, believers, give Jesus, speak Jesus, His promises, His teachings, the reminder of His presence to those you know who are in a desperate place. And speak Jesus to the people in your life who don't know Him. They don't have a relationship with Him. They're desperate for Him. They need to seek the Word of God. They don't even know where to go. You do. I do. Are we speaking Jesus to them? And finally, if you're here and you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, He died for you because He loves you. He died for you and lives ready to forgive all your sin, all of it, if you would turn from your sin to Him in faith. Trust in Him and what He did for you in His death and resurrection. Will you turn to Him and trust Him today? He is where you must go. He is what you need. And He is who you need. He is who we all need. And desperate times reveal our desperate need. And we all desperately need the Word of God. We need Jesus. And He's waiting for us to come to Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how You speak to us. That You reveal Yourself to us. That You reveal what's true of You. That You reveal what's true of us. That God, You call us, You desire for us to be in Your presence. And I thank You for the opportunity we have this morning to be with You in Your presence together. And God, would You just continue to remind us every day in your written word, and ultimately know in the word made flesh that you love us, that you will never leave us or forsake us, and that you're all we need. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that I pray.